Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Well, welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. I'm your host, David Kirkpatrick. Today, we have a special episode and a guest host who's driving the conversation, Arnie Young. Arnie is US Steel's chief risk officer and today, he's invited Eric Van Dozem from ING and Marilyn Cece from JP Morgan to talk about sustainability and finance. Now, let's listen in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I'm Arnie Yan. I'm the Treasurer and Chief Risk Officer here at US Steel. Excited to bring to you this steel story. We have two very special guests with us here today who you'll hear from providing their expertise and insights into this awesome topic of sustainable finance and, and our focus on steel. We have Marilyn Cece, who is Senior Advisor to the Center for Carbon Transition at JP Morgan. And our colleague and good friend from over in Europe, Eric Von Dusum, is a director within ING's Metals and Mining's coverage team covering a variety of industries and geographies. So pleased to have you both aboard and guys, it wasn't too long ago where we were sitting collectively in Memphis, Tennessee. We had an awesome opportunity to get together as a group. For those of you, by the way, who are not familiar, Responsible Steel is a non-for-profit organization. It is, from our perspective, the steel industry's first global multi-stakeholder and standard and certification program for steel. So we love it because it really helps us get down the pathway of standardization. In addition to Responsible Steel, the forum, you know, there are a lot of things going on, a lot of perspectives, which is really important. We need all the stakeholders in the room. You know, we say best for all at U.S. Steel, and that includes everybody really who's a part of the solution. So we had labor in the room. We had people who are entrepreneurs, the steel companies. We had bankers like yourselves. You know, heck, at the end, we even saw Elvis. You know, he wasn't a part of the official agenda. But at the end of the last night, it was funny. We did see uh, Elvis dancing upstairs at the Peabody. So it was really a great opportunity to bring together all these broad perspectives to work towards a solution together. So it's wonderful to have you guys both back here today and excited to have the conversation. Thanks for having us. And with that, Marilyn, Eric, maybe in turn, I'll ask you guys just to introduce yourselves. Tell us about your roles at JP Morgan and ING for the audiences. Sure. When I start off, Marilyn Cece, I'm a senior advisor to the Center for Carbon Transition at JP Morgan. It is a team that helps develop the methodology for calculating the sectoral decarbonization of our financed emissions. My name is Eric Van Dusum. I'm a director in ING's metals, mining, and fertilizer sector coverage team for the EMEA region, and I'm also global lead for steel, meaning that I'm responsible for our commercial strategy towards the sector. And next to that, I'm also chair of the Sustainable Steel Principles, the first methodology that banks can use to actually report on the climate intensity of their steel portfolio. All right. Thanks, Marilyn. Thanks, Eric. And for those of you watching from home, wherever you're watching from, I have to give Eric and Marilyn both a lot of credit and thanks. And ING and JP Morgan, you know, you guys have been instrumental in really helping us at US Steel think about and not just the risk, but the opportunities in terms of how do you look at ESG? How do you make it a part of your business? How do you incorporate it in your strategy or cap structure? And so it's been a great journey with you all. So thanks. First of all, maybe going back to Responsible Steel was exciting. We've come out of there and there's probably been three or four dog 
years or lives worth of activity in ESG as it just seems to be the velocity is just keeps increasing. This weekend, news out of Europe, you know, fit for 55 tune-ups and additions and a lot of discussion about the Inflation Reduction Act. So there's all these things in the constellation right now, but I thought maybe to start with, it'd be a good level set just to hear your guys' perspectives broadly in terms of corporates. Maybe think about three to five years ago in terms of where corporates like U.S. Steel and others were, and maybe kind of give us a walk forward to how has sustainability come into the consciousness of corporates? How have they started to bring it into their everyday lives? Maybe give us a little bit of a retrospective from past to present. And Marilyn, maybe I'll, I'll ask you to kick us off there and then we'll, we'll flip it over to Eric. Yeah, sure. Well, it's changed dramatically. I mean, that's the obvious answer. And we'll start with that. I think if I look back five years ago, the conversation was about green bonds. That's really all we talked about. There were green shoots, shall we say, or early changes, renewable PPAs, right? There were things that were starting to really take hold. Five years later, we're in a completely different place. We have the regulatory environment having, you know, certainly in Europe, well ahead of where we are in the U.S., but certainly making great inroads. In the U.S., we have incentives. You mentioned the IRA, which we can talk more about, but certainly we're getting government, shall we say, carrots to encourage good behavior and, and transition behavior. And we also have the SEC, right? The USAC for filers is going to be required now, once we get the final guidance from them, to provide transparency and disclosure around emissions. Scope one, two, and where relevant, of course, scope three. So I think a lot has changed. I think also SPTI and other similar groups have really coalesced, including Responsible Steel, around a way forward to commit to neutrality by 2050 and wherever possible, intermediate steps, maybe 2030, right, to really see what CapEx spend and, and a little bit more meat on the bone on how one actually begins to decarbonize. Yeah, no, a lot there, Marilyn, for sure. So thanks for the thought. By the way, for the audiences at home again, Marilyn, you, you were instrumental in writing, I know, the Green Bond Principles. And Eric, maybe turning the, the camera lens over to you, you've just come off of a round of helping get sustainable steel principles on their legs as one of the instrumental actors within that framework. But maybe anything to add just to Marilyn's thoughts on you know where corporates have been and where they are? You're sitting over in Europe a lot, I know, and you have that customer base at your fingertips, but maybe any perspectives you'd share? Yeah, I mean, I think next to all the regulatory changes that have been taking place, I think companies have really started to embrace sustainability less as a thing that they need to do or, you know, like a tick the box kind of thing and much more as part of corporate strategy. And I think a lot of companies are seeing this actually as a business opportunity now, seeing it as a marketing opportunity, surely, to actually look at how it can make their business better, both from a sustainability perspective, but also from a profit perspective. And I think that's, of course, the win-win that you want as we go into our journey to net zero. And I mean, there are many, many examples. Marilyn mentioned SBTI, and you actually now see companies really embracing these sign-based targets, but also trying to be more ambitious than what's actually required. And using that as a marketing tool gives them access to clients. You see, for instance, that Volkswagen is marketing their electric cars as being made with neutral carbon steel. Again, because they believe that their customer base maybe is willing to pay more for that or it has marketing value. So you really see that people are starting to get a little bit more creative around business models and, and how they can actually use this trend to create this win-win. And I think that's a great development. Yeah, no, you would agree here, US Steel too, Eric. And you guys both hit on key points that 
trigger a thought. You know, for me sitting within U.S. Steel, what I could tell you is a lot of things will come into a company and they're they're kind of viewed as projects. But I think with sustainability, what it gave us the opportunity to do is kind of reimagine and rethink the direction we were going as a company. It's easy to think about risks as bad guys that are out there and things to avoid. But for us, this was a way to embrace what's going to be best for our company long term. Let's embrace it. That's a great way to engage with customers, with investors. And so it's been a great, wonderful opportunity, I can tell you, that people have embraced as a part of their everyday work lives. That's probably a big change. You know, it's, this isn't a project. It's not a side gig. This is a part of what you're doing, whether you're in the legal team, the finance team, procurement, IR, you name it, the commercial organization, everyone's got a role here. So I think the sustainability team in particular, Rich and Erica and group at our, our shop have done a wonderful job in helping get that message through. And then maybe just turning the discussion for a moment to investors and then even, you know, banks, let's say, what have you guys seen develop in recent years there? Eric, you touched on regulatory, which maybe we can get to in a minute, but maybe just share with the group here. How has the dialogue changed internally at your banks or how have you seen investors try to position themselves and maybe even allocate capital a little bit differently or look at opportunities? And Marilyn, we can, again, start with you on this one, if you'd like. And Eric, feel free to, to weigh in from there. Yeah. Well, I'll start with JP Morgan. Obviously, we're working on our financed emission portfolio and making commitments to reductions. We're working through each portfolio, one sector at a time. That will continue. Our group, the Center for Carbon Transition, is a brand new group at JP Morgan. It's like we're together 18 months now, maybe two years. And literally, that's what we spend our time calculating, developing the methodology, calculating our financed emissions, and then working together with our clients, right? We want this to be a transition and a smooth transition, right? And so we want to help and work with our clients so that we all get to the same end goal. From the investor side, you know, we've seen quite a lot in proxy season, right? And so equity investors are quite vocal. You know, one of the things I think that has changed between, let's say, two years ago and this year is while we have a tremendous number, of course, of environmental proposals, what has happened this year, interestingly enough, is not quite as many have actually passed What has happened, though, is I think investors are actually getting some confidence that companies are actually taking it seriously and managing it. And they don't feel they need to be prescriptive in telling a company exactly how to do it because each one takes slightly different approaches to get to the same goal. And that's been I think that's been refreshing to see companies really embracing it and investors giving companies the latitude to actually do that. Yep, that's well said. Eric, how about from your side? Any observation you'd share, whether at ING or more broadly speaking? Well, obviously, as you know, and I think specifically, I mean, sustainability is a broad one. If we talk about steel, definitely a broad, relevant one. But I mean, the big elephant in the room is, of course, decarbonization. I think if we think about the steel sector and decarbonization and also how banks look at that, or at least how we at ING look at that, is that, you know, this is not just a sustainability thing. It is a risk thing. If you're in the steel sector as a CEO, this is the number one thing on your mind. How am I going to get my company both thriving and both being carbon neutral in the next 30 years? And of course, from a risk perspective, this is something that we look at, that we think about. And that's also why in developing the sustainable steel principles, we did not just want to focus on the disclosure that banks have to do, but we also wanted to focus on, so what is actually the disclosure that companies do? And are these kind of things comparable? And can banks then actually use that data to engage with their clients to talk about, you know, guys, we, we kind of see where you are as compared to your peers, as compared to net zero. 
we kind of like to understand better how you're going to get from A to B. And then, of course, the next question, hopefully, is how can we help you with that, right? So it kind of becomes a more holistic discussion, which I think is also taking place at clients because, indeed, before, probably also at Steel Company, you have a sustainability team waving their sustainability flag. But I think now, and, and I think we also see that at U.S. Steel, right, and everything that you are doing is becoming much more integrated throughout the whole organization. I think that's, in the end, what you want because... As we said before, it's key to your continued survival. It's key to making a strategic differentiator. And I think we look at it in the same way. Yeah. And you hit on something again that triggers a thought for my side too. And you mentioned from the CEO level on down, you know, for us, it's been Dave's leadership. We clearly have let people know this is best for all, right? It includes the planet, all the stakeholders we have, and it's integrated again into the strategy and the CapEx plans that we have. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell Folks, when we meet with them at conferences, you know, look at the sustainability roadmap we have on our website, kind of read all about it. Everything we're doing, we're pretty clearly telegraphing, and it really has a clear trajectory towards reducing our carbon intensity, but also meeting the needs of our customers, you know, who are looking to do the same. So there's been a, a ton of activity there. You know, we, we touched on regulatory, and it seems we'd be remiss probably not to talk about the fun stuff like Inflation Reduction Act or EU fit for 55. There's all these, you know, I don't know what you call them, the mega clouds of things that are out there that are big movers and shakers for all of us. And it's interesting to see companies doing things on their own, a sense of regulatory pressure, kind of shape-shifting where things are going. Marilyn, give us some thoughts maybe on how you see some of the regional initiatives at a high level if you can. Yeah, well, let's start with the U.S., my home base. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act is a real game changer. It's certainly the most amazing incentives that we've seen on the climate side for transition for quite some time. CCUS is heavily needed, as you know well, in the steel industry, certainly to capture GHG emissions from the blast furnaces, as well even the residual emissions, right, from the electric arc furnaces for the use of natural gas. So the new incentives will cover not only capture, transport, and storage, but they'll also expand it even greater to allow steel as well as other industrial processes will now be able to be incentivized by these lower costs. So that's, I think, a fantastic opportunity. Changes the economics, really encourages and pushes it forward. I also think the other huge winner is hydrogen. So you yourselves have done a lot of work in the electric arc furnaces. And once they become, right, hydrogen becomes commercially viable for you, converting from natural gas to hydrogen is a, is a win-win. And certainly the U.S. government is incentivizing you to do that. And I think the thing to remember is that what's been unique about the IRA, aside from just the incentives, is the length of time. So you as a company can be assured of 10 years, right, of this government plan in place so that it doesn't disappear with the next administration. And I think that's a very important thing that we have so that companies such as yourselves are able to take advantage of that. We also had for renewables, we have the extension of the production tax credit from 21 to 25, which again, another win. And lastly, even in the built environment, which is relevant, of course, for steel, there's additional $5 billion worth of grant funding for some of these low carbon materials. And so that's another one that's been brought into it. We haven't even talked about the Department of Energy. They seem to have an enormous opportunity to help with innovation and provide quite a lot of funding. 
Yeah, great examples, Stu Merlin. You know, I think you touched on the longer glide path that these programs could make available to companies like U.S. Steel. You know, and I think for us that's really important because when you think about just putting a project up, bringing it up on its legs, I mean, these are three-year builds or longer. You know, before you even get to the point where you're making your first available product, I think sometimes folks appreciate right. There's a push for sooner is better. You got to think about, man, you know, the capital we put to work in these projects, and we're about more ambitious than anyone out there when I look at the announced projects relative to our cap or liquidity. We're trying to move mountains figuratively, but you have to build these things, you know, and so it takes time and you, you need the business case, you need the offtake commitments to really make it all happen. So uh, great points. Eric, anything from your perspectives? EU's got a different approach. We've been living in the ETS framework for a number of years since 2005 with our Koshitz operations, but many perspectives you have on the regulatory framework or structures that are out there? Well, as usual, the EU has been a little bit more, shall we say, European about it. <laughs> <laughs> along with that. <laughs> Instead of, you know, I think what the US has done with, with the IRA is, is literally turbocharging the net zero economy and putting such, as Marilyn said, incentives in place for those investments to be made. And I think that, as a bank, this is exactly what we want, right? You you want to be able to create a regulatory environment that encourages entrepreneurs to make the business cases that will decarbonize the energy transition. That's what you want. And I think Europe is a little bit more bureaucratic, perhaps. And they have last week finally approved the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So that will finally start working. So basically creating a level playing field in combination with the, the phase out of the ETS. So, I mean, that will start pricing carbon, which is very, very useful, and will eventually make it more expensive to emit it. What we are lacking is the proper incentives or the proper, I think, regulatory framework, especially when it comes to permitting, to really turbocharge the renewable electricity production that we need, right? Because if you look at decarbonizing the steel industry alone, the amount of renewable electricity that we're going to need for all the electric arc furnaces, for all the hydrogen that needs to be produced, is humongous. And for that, we really need to start with producing that renewable electricity. I mean, of course, Europe is in the midst of an energy crisis. So, you know, it makes it way more difficult at the moment to even think about those investment decisions. But those are some of the things that need to be put in place in order to really get that going. And I think more could be done. I know that the European Commission under Ms. von der Leyen has made it their priority, but we're still seeing that, for instance, in Germany, where I am now, it's actually very, very difficult to build a wind park because, you know, you have to be X amount of kilometers away from a village and there's a lot of villages here. So, you know, it's all those little things that I think that need to change and that need to get better incentivization to actually, you know, create the framework and the environment which will allow companies like yourself, right, to really make the investment decisions to decarbonize. Yeah, great point again to permitting, right, is the P word, I'll call it, but it's important. We have to do things the right way, but I think that's been one of the challenges we've always faced. So with good intent, right, a lot of companies like ours, U.S. Steel, you know, will try to go out, get things done. You find you have to work with a lot of different constituents, understandably, but that's just another one of those timeline items in addition to the project management permitting that whole process. I think folks want to jump to the conclusion that building low carbon assets is like flipping a light switch, but you have that project build, you have the permitting piece in front of it. It takes a community to really get all those things done. So it's a great point. Definitely room for improvement. Speaking of room for improvement. So another fun topic in the acronym jungle world that sustainable finance is, you know, and and let's focus in on steel maybe for a minute. You know, we've had a number of groups that have popped up over the time. Marilyn, you mentioned the word green shoots before, and we've had green shoots, I think, left and right and in the middle in terms of groups that have wanted to help foster improvement in steel. So I think 
Responsible Steel was fun in a way. We had, again, a lot of different voices in the room. We compete tooth and nail against all the steel companies that are out there, but I think steel companies would all agree that steel is a part of the solution, right? Infinitely recyclable. It definitely has a seat at the table in terms of a sustainable future for this world. So I think our concern or the opportunity next to the concern would be how do we standardize some of the measurements, some of the tools that we need in order to drive progress? And maybe, Eric, I'll ask you to kick us off. Responsible Steel is just one of the tools, right? It has 13 principles across E, S, and G. Shout out to Annie, you know, Heaton and team. We have Big River Steel as an RS certified site, first one in North America at the event. Responsible Steel was able to announce the, the more than doubling of responsible steel sites around the world from a volume perspective. And what we like about that framework is it has that accreditation across all three big letters, E, S, and G, but it also has that assurance stamp to support it. And Eric, you helped launch and get sustainable steel principles on its leg, you know, an effort that we're involved with as well. But maybe share with us some of your perspectives and thoughts on standardization and measuring the data gathering, you know, what's the opportunity there? Yeah, and then first of all, I think it's good to commend Responsible Steel, right? Because I think they put at the heart what I was mentioning before, kind of a holistic approach to sustainability, right? This is not just about GHG, no, this is throughout the company, how is it done? And I think from that perspective, it's very good that they're out there and then offer their certification. It definitely gives us as outsiders looking in kind of a seal of approval. So I think that's very useful. I think that there is reason to be hopeful when it comes to standardization. Hope is good. We like that. I'm a hopeful guy. I think two years ago when we started working on the sustainable steel principles, there was not a lot of stuff out there. And I think if you look around now, obviously we have responsible steel. Of course, the the sustainable steel principles are there. SBTI is coming up with a steel standard. We have the IEA, which is developing a green steel standard. So, you know, they're all different kind of things and they all have different kind of applications. And I know, you know, Arnie, that you are worried sometimes about, you know, they're all slightly different, but they also all have slightly different purposes and all have slightly different audiences. And I think what the great thing is that if you look at the content of it, they're 90 to 95% the same, right? They're all based on a fixed scope and boundary, which again, two years ago was something that not a lot of people were talking about. They're all based on, however you want to call it, the sliding scale of primary, secondary separation, the distinction there, and they all have that. So they're all built around the same framework, the same principles. All these things are also talking to each other, right? So, I mean, Responsible Steel was on our input group. SBTI was there. Uh, the IEA was there. We are talking to SBTI as well about their standards. So everybody's communicating with each other to also make sure that there is alignment. It's never going to be perfect. So it's never going to be 100% the same. But I do think it's encouraging to see that, that many people are following similar principles, working towards a similar way. And yeah, eventually there's always going to be differences. But that's just also the thing if you collect information for different types of audiences. Uh, good points. And it was really interesting to see the, the sustainable steel principles getting put together. And I appreciated the rigor and the objectivity in terms of you trying to create that common language, right, to really be able to measure any number of steel producers. And Marilyn, any thoughts from your side in terms of the standardization or, or these frameworks? You know, how, how are they working in concert? Or are we going down a productive track where you can see some envisioned some convergence, maybe? Yeah. Maybe share your thoughts on this topic, too. I think the most important thing that Eric really mentioned is that they're 95% the same, right? We're all moving in the same direction. So focusing on the small differences and approaches, I don't think is really that relevant or that important. I think the idea is to move forward and to move quickly, right? So that's sort of my approach. 
You're going to have differences, you know, also geographically, right? Who has access to natural gas? Who has access to scrap steel and things like that? So there are going to be a lot of differences that you just, you have to live with. But again, if, if we can move 95%, the rest of it is a rounding error, right? From that perspective. And we move forward and we decarbonize together, both the banks as well as investors and the companies, right? I think it's a win-win for all. Yeah. And I think we agree too, right? We're going to be the first to tell people, look, we may not get this perfect as we go, but we're not going to sit here and wait and twiddle our thumbs. It's important to make progress. It's important to drive our strategy ahead. So I think big opportunities. That's really, I think, a great backdrop, you know, in terms of what's changed, investors, we've talked about corporates, standardization, maybe one of the topics near and dear to my heart as a a counter of cash as treasurer (laughs) and chief risk officer in addition. But as treasurer, you know, I I look at our our balance sheet, and this is a general comment, though, across the manufacturing landscape, this is a big lift. You know, you have to raise capital, you have to really, to be ambitious, you're going to have to put capital to work. So I think a lot of focus has been on loans that could be available. Great idea, but everyone's balance sheet at some point is going to be constrained, you know, by leverage. The ratings agencies remind us, right, and looking at our balance sheet that, you know, here's the parameters that, that keep you at a rating or put you at risk of a downgrade. And, and that's important to a corporate. Maybe you guys share some thoughts about, you know, what are some of the tools or structures or things that could help corporates advance those sustainability investments, but to do it in a way that doesn't put the balance sheet or credit ratings in harm's way. It's almost a paradox, right? But uh, I'm not throwing out easy questions, I know, to you, but maybe share any thoughts, Marilyn. I'll turn it over to you. Well, there are a lot of financing vehicles, right? Green bonds is the most obvious, and it's one that certainly U.S. Steel took advantage of very early on as one of the early actors in this space. But you see private equity opportunities, even in some cases, some small, you know, slices of venture capital, but also joint ventures, off-take agreements. You know, there are a lot of different ways that you can you know, move the needle. Certainly you have investors that are looking for private investment opportunities, either on the equity side, I heard you on the debt side, but certainly even on the equity side. So opportunities without a doubt exist. And you see so much, I would say, small investments in private equity from corporations in every industry looking for small investments in climate tech solutions so that as this technology becomes available, as direct air capture becomes more accessible, they'll be in line, right, as an equity owner to be able to take advantage of the technology. And I think that's actually probably the biggest change that we've seen is really sort of the expanding out beyond the more traditional ways of finding capital to really look for all these alternatives. And I honestly, they are there. They are available. So reach out to your banks. The two of them here. So I'll be yes. extending the call after the audiences are off. For, no, but and Eric, what about any thoughts you'd add from your perspective on this topic? Different forms of financing tools, way of getting this done? I think what we're, of course, seeing, and especially if we're looking at steel and if we're looking at the energy transition, but not exclusively steel, right? You see a shift in value chains, right? So the old value chain used to be iron or coking coal, steel, and then, you know, automotive. And now we're seeing that actually we're getting electricity companies involved. We need to get hydrogen companies involved, uh, carbon capturing companies, right? So there's all kinds of different new players that are going to be circling the steel sector. And that gives room for innovative business ideas, right? Innovative partnerships. If you look at, for instance, what Erstedt and Salzgitter are doing when you have a renewable energy company that says, hey, I need green steel for my windmills because I've set a SBTI target for 2040. Who can help me? And, you know, by the way, I can give you green electricity, which you need to decarbonize your steel making, right? So 
you can figure all kinds of partnerships within that shifting value chain, which you know require a little bit of out of the box thinking, maybe going into ideas that you haven't really thought of before. And I think, of course, steel is also a bit of a conservative industry, right? So it may it may take a little bit of time for those kind of things to really get hold. But even you get startups now in steel, right? In Europe, we have two steel startups that are thinking really with a startup mentality about setting up a steel company, which is, think about talking about that five years ago, right? Like you have a hip Swedish company setting up a steel company and you get all kinds of young, smart people going to work in the north of Sweden trying to make that happen. I mean, those are all kind of very, very exciting ideas. And I think that all encapsulates the idea that, yeah, it can't all be death, right? That's clear. I mean, and obviously steel is... To begin with, I think already a hard to finance sector. It's cyclical. It's, it, it's high operational leverage, volatile cash flow. So this is always something that you need to approach with a moderate amount of risk appetite. But there are subsidies. There are all kinds of investors. There are all kinds of other people in your value chain, as, as Marilyn said. Also, you know, maybe off takers. You know, we mentioned the car manufacturers before. They need their green steel, right, in order to comply with the SBTI. So partner up with them, uh, partner up with the, the renewable electricity providers, see what's out there. And those can also provide, you know, some capital from sources that you didn't expect or wouldn't have traditionally thought of. Yeah. I think you guys are hitting it on the head. You know, we like to say, and we genuinely say it, we're trying to work with like-minded partners. This is going to be an incredibly exciting and, and disruptive time. You know, whether you look at autos and what's happening with EV fleet conversions uh, in steel to decarbonize all the other industries that are going through the similar challenges. It's exciting. So it's exciting to be a part of. U.S. Steel is excited to be a part of that change. Maybe just wrapping it up, I wanted to ask you both just to think about any closing remarks you'd have on sustainable finance topics in general, or a fun one if you would take it on would be, you know, say you had a magic wand and you could change something to make all of this work better in some practical way. Is there a a magic wand wave that helps us get to the future faster? And uh, Marilyn, I'll I'll turn it over to you for any wrap thoughts or a magic wand idea you have? Well, magic wand is get all the governments to work together at the same time, right? So one country is not competing against another, right? So Europe has all the regulation and the U.S. is providing the incentives. Let's try and harmonize that and do that together. So is an opportunity for everyone to succeed. There's certainly enough work to do. And, you know, let's face it, steel is part of the green economy, right? It's necessary. So there's plenty of opportunity. That's what I would say. Absolutely. Eric? Yeah, well, you know, I like to say steel is inevitable, so it's here to stay. I think, as I said before, if I have a magic wand, I would put enough renewable electricity around the globe so we'd solve that problem and then the rest would probably follow because logical business decisions would be made. So that's my magic wand idea. I think generally the trend is encouraging, right? I mean, companies are paying way more attention to sustainability, getting way more serious about the decarbonization plans. Financing partners are serious about you know talking to their clients about it, trying to see where they can support them for the right business cases. So I think that's all great, but we need way more and we need it to go faster. And for that, you know, we also need the macro picture to be right. And I think the U.S. has set a big step in that. And, and I'm hopeful, you know, that, that Europe will also follow and uh, that soon, you know, we'll have a big pile of green steel mill applications on my desk. We are happy to facilitate, Eric. It's exciting. And I, I want to thank both of our magicians again, Marilyn and Eric. Thank you both. You truly have been magicians for me, for U.S. Steel, you know, and helping us get further along the curve. We're excited about the future. And thank you for helping us tell this steel story on sustainable finance. Thanks for having me. to be part of it, Arnie. Steel Stories is brought to you by U.S. Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at US Steel, thanks for listening.